2% Cars. My name is Nico Lombard, and you are listening to episode 10. In today's episode, I talk with Magnus Walker, the famed Porsche collector and enthusiast. It was such a good experience, and I hope you all enjoy my newest episode of 100% Cars. A quick reminder, before we get started, please go follow me at 100% Cars Podcast on Instagram for more updates on the podcast. So the first question and I wanted to ask about cars, so please go follow me if you are interested. In, uh, so thank you all, kid, and I hope you I all enjoy my newest episode of 100%. Yeah, it was Porsche, and you know, I tell that story all the time, the 10-year-old 10 10 year growing up in Sheffield. I had the poster on the wall, like the poster behind me. I went to the London Olds Court Motor Show in 1977. That was when I fell in love with Porsche for the first time. That was the dream as a 10-year-old. And uh, here I am, 43 years later, still living the dream. So uh, that was the car, white martini Porsche, as a 10-year-old back in 1977. Wow, that's so cool. And so growing up in the UK, was the car culture different from what it is here in the US or in California? Yeah, I mean, you have to remember I was growing up in the 70s and 80s. And where I grew up in Sheffield, England, the car culture was not as accessible. But what you have to remember is a lot of great cars came out of England and still come out of England. And that period in the 70s and 80s was a great period for British cars, for motorsports. So um, the car culture was different to how it is today. It wasn't as accessible because... We weren't doing things on cell phones and laptops and things like that. But the British car culture has always been pretty strong. I see. And I'm just curious, when did you move to the U.S.? I came here when I was 19 years old, and that was in 1986 here in L.A. Oh, that's so cool. I've lived in L.A. permanently since 1987. That's so cool. And so do you remember your first automotive job that you had here in the U.S.? I've never really had an automotive job. Yeah. I do remember my first car that I ever owned. I never owned a car in England, never had a driver's license. So the first car I ever owned was a 1977 Toyota Corolla 2TC. I bought it, I believe in 1988, 1980, probably 1988, so I was 21. I paid $200 for it. I drove it around without a driver's license here in LA for a couple of months. And then ironically, took my California driver's test, passed it, in Santa Monica, that DMV wow. down on Colorado and Cloverfield mm-hmm. was where I took my uh, driving test back in 1988, 32 years ago here in LA, wow. in the 1977 Toyota Corolla. All right, and then from transferring from your first car, I would love to know what your first Porsche was and how you got it. Okay, so first car, 1977 Toyota Corolla. I'm gonna talk you through my second car, was a 1988 Saab 900 Turbo SPG model. I bought that in 91. The first Porsche I ever bought was a red slant nose conversion on a 74 911 that I bought at the Pomona Swap Meet in 1992. So here in LA, I paid 7,500 bucks for it. It was bright red, big whale tail on it, slant nose fenders, turbo flares, but it only had a 2.7 liter motor. But it didn't matter. That car represented a dream come true and a sense of personal achievement. I, I had the dream, I never gave up on the dream, And 15 years after I saw the first Porsche back in 1977, I acquired my first Porsche. And that just represented freedom to go wherever I want to go, whatever speed I want to go. So that was the first Porsche, the 74 911, bought at the Pomona Swap Meet for 7,500 bucks in 1992. Wow. So I want to transfer back um, in your childhood. Were your parents supportive of this, you know, passion of yours? And did that greatly influence your passion for cars later on in the future? 
Yes, great question. Thanks for asking it. I think they did, especially my dad. We didn't grow up with any fancy cars in the household. We grew up sort of, I suppose, working class. Um, so it wasn't like I had access to Porsches, but my dad was mechanical. Um, we went to quite a few local club races and we watched a lot of motorsports, Formula One on TV. So that era was, you know, Nicky Lauda, James Hunt, the epic battle in 76. You know, they made the film Rush about it. That was the period that I grew up watching motorsports. But I never actually had a car in England, and it wasn't as if I worked on cars with my dad. My dad wasn't tinkering on his car. He had a company car that wasn't really anything cool. So it wasn't like we grew up with a father and son relationship where I was helping my dad, handing him tools, working on his car at an early age. But my dad was pretty knowledgeable and we did watch quite a lot of motorsports together. So he was an early influence on my passion for all things automotive. I see. And did you have any siblings to share this passion with? I got an older brother who's a, a keen motorcyclist and a younger sister. So, you know, I suppose my brother and I, and my dad would watch Formula One and motorsports and uh, we shared that together. That's so cool. And so further on, as you collected more cars, were you trying to um, find cars to buy or were you waiting for people to come and say, hey, would you buy this car for me? To begin with, I was chasing cars. Later on, people offer me cars. But to begin with, you know, I was just enjoying uh, experiencing different cars and back then it wasn't just Porsche you know in the 90s I had a um I'll do it in chronological order so in the early 90s I owned this um 74 slant nose 911 but I also had a 65 GT 350R Shelby Mustang replica I had a 67 E-type Jag I had two 69 Super Bs I had a 73 Lotus Europa I had a 79 308 GTB Ferrari and a couple of Porsches. This was in the mid nineties, so 25 years ago. And what I liked about all those cars is they all offered variety and different driving experiences. But what I noticed is each car probably excelled in one area, but the Porsche excelled in almost all areas. And by that, I mean, you know, the Mustang went pretty quick, but didn't stop good. The Super B went really quick, but didn't handle. The Lotus Europa uh, was underpowered, but handled really, really well. The E-Type Jag looked cool, but wasn't reliable. And then the Ferrari was sort of a combination of all of that. The Porsches, they kind of excelled at everything and they were super reliable and they were affordable. So little by little in the late 90s, probably early 2000s, I got rid of all my non-Porsche cars. And for the next almost 20 years, strictly Porsche. Up until last year or the last two years, when I started down the slippery slope of acquiring British cars again, I got a 79 S2 Lotus Esprit. And just recently I've acquired two uh, E-type Jags oh, wow. and a couple of other sort of different American cars. So to me, it's all about variety. Porsche is my drug of choice. It's my religion, but I always tell people get out and drive. Doesn't matter what you drive, just uh, make some memorable moments. That's so cool. And so would you say that the majority of your cars in your collection represent something about you no i think each car for me represents a moment in time as to where i was at in that time and the cars you know cover a certain law that i was looking for you know i'm sat next to a row of turbos the three liter turbo was the car that started my love affair with porsche so i'm a goal-orientated collector i collect things that interest me 
personally, not necessarily the newest, greatest, fastest, but things that I'm intrigued by. Generally something that's got a motorsport sort of background or something that's a very cool style or design aesthetic, such as E-Type Jag. So, you know, they all cover a moment in time. And for me, they all represent a way to experience a journey. We can't step back in time, but I just got a 1971 V12 E-Type Jag that's almost 50 years old. If I want to go back in time to the early 70s and experience what that may have been like, driving the E-Type Jag gives me a pretty good experience of what driving a car would have been like in those times. The car hasn't changed. Maybe the environment has changed, but the car itself is pretty much how it was back in 1971. So the cars for me are a vehicle to experience memorable moments, uh, as well as going from A to B. So, you know, just horses for courses, depending what I want to experience on that journey behind the wheel. I see. And so you talked about getting, you know, a 50 year old Jaguar. Does this mean, are you more hands-on with the cars you buy if they're, you know, more older or do you have, you know, are you collaborating with other people, you know, working on these cars? I've always had a little crew uh, that I work with that maintain the cars. And when I was building a lot of cars, I'd have like a mechanic, a paint and body guy, and, uh, you know, basically a guy that helped facilitate putting it together. I would be what I would call the creative visionary guy, came up with the concept, brought in this little team, managed the project, helped, you know, to my limited ability of taking things apart and putting things back together. And then controlling the whole process of, you know, things getting sent out to be rebuilt, whether it was motor and transmission or parts to be powder coated, painted or CAD plated. And then the final assembly right here in the garage. And this for me is a hobby. It's not a job. It's not a business. I don't work on customer cars. I seldom sell cars. You know, for me, I'm all about the thrill of the chase. I say what brings true car enthusiasts together is the love of all aspects of the car from the beginning of the idea, you know, a car you may have seen in a film or a movie or a poster or a race or whatever, to then the chase for the acquisition. And then just like what I'm going through for, you know, probably the hundredth time, getting a new car, whether it's a 50 year old car, it doesn't really matter. And then going through the process of getting that car uh, reliable and me feeling comfortable in the car so I can go drive it. The E-Type Jag's a perfect example. The car had sat down in Miami for a few years. Yes, it'll drive around the block, but I wouldn't want to drive it to Palm Springs. So I'm trying to figure out when am I going to start that project or, you know, what is the process going to be? So every car is sort of same but different. All right. So that means when buying a car, it's it's you're not looking at, oh, this is, you know, has a damaged bumper or chipping paint. It's just what I can do to, you know, fix this up and, you know, be able yeah, to. Yeah, I've never owned a car at any price point that I didn't have to do something to it. No car is perfect. I don't need a car to be perfect. Some cars are shinier than others. Like the E-Type Jag, I don't know if you saw it on Instagram, but it's got this perfectly faded patina paint, which is something that can't be duplicated. And I was searching for a car like that for quite some time. I'm also searching for a Ferrari 308 GT4, and I want one from 75, six and seven series one that is not red. And that's proving to be quite difficult to find an old Ferrari that's not red. So, you know, a lot of times this is a, a lesson in patience. It's a lesson in networking. And by that, I mean, I'll put an ad on Instagram and Facebook, hey, wanted, and then list out what the car is. And then, you know, of course, you know, it's kind of frustrating because it's happening to me right now. I'll get all these people email me, hey, I've got a black Ferrari and, you know, they'll show it to me and then they'll go, but it's not for sale. 
you know, so all these guys just sort of want to brag that they've already got something you're looking for. They dangle the carrot and then go, it's not for sale. Or, you know, so-and-so's got one or my friend's thinking of selling one or I saw one on Bring a Trailer and it sold two months ago. So, you know, sometimes things come easy. Sometimes I end up buying a car I wasn't even looking for. And then sometimes like the Ferrari, I've been looking for this car on and off for about three or four months and I still haven't found one. And I've got a bunch of car buddies who are brokers who can supposedly find anything, mm -hmm. but even they haven't found me one that I want. So certain things come really easy. Some things you got to wait a long time for. And sometimes along the way, you find something you didn't know you were looking for. And that's just part of the car world. And what I mean by that is I recently bought a 1975 original paint patinaed AMC Hornet. Wasn't even a car I was looking for. I was actually looking for the patina D type Jack, but the Hornet fell into my lap at the right time at the right price. And it filled that little niche. It wasn't even a car on my list. So sometimes for me, it's just a matter of, oh, wow, that's a really cool car. It's affordable and it's here in LA. So sometimes I buy things I, I definitely don't need and sometimes wasn't even looking for. All right. And so I'd love to transfer on to, you know, as a former fashion de designer, do, those, do these, you know, artistic abilities transfer to your car's interiors or just when you're rebuilding a car, do you add some sort of element? Yeah, for me, it's all about adding my own personality to the build. A lot of people, you know, get upset by that. But for me, it's like, if you own the car, you can do whatever you want to it. And by that, I mean, I always say the car determines whether it gets restored or not. I've got a bunch of, you know, pretty desirable numbers matching original 930 turbos. Those are not cars that I'm going to restore. Those are cars that I'm going to keep the way they are. So not everything needs to be modified. And it really depends on the car and what I'm going to do with it. And I'm a goal-orientated builder in the sense of I tend not to overbuild cars. They have to function. They've got to run on regular pump gas, not 110 octane that you can't get that easy. And they have to be drivable and for the most part reliable. So, you know, I tend to um, come from a little bit of a performance view of not overkill. And then from a design aesthetic sort of point of view, my area of what I really enjoy is late 60s, early 70s, sport purpose, motorsport, Le Mans type cars, but cars that are what I would call streetable track cars, i.e. you could drive them to the racetrack and drive them back. You don't need a transporter or a car hauler. So you can go on your favorite mountain road and have, you know, like seven, eight tenths of the fun on the street. So that's kind of what I do when I build cars for myself. So for me, you know, it's all about adding my own character and personality to the car. And the Porsche is a perfect platform to do that with. All right. And so you notice that a lot of your cars you modify. So you're not really thinking about cars that will appreciate or depreciate. Is it, And my question is, does uh, someone with such a big car collection always have to worry about when buying a car, whether the car will appreciate or depreciate? No, I never, ever do that. That is the last thing I ever do. I've honestly never bought a car thinking, what is it going to be worth after? And it's kind of a pet peeve to me. I get a lot of people email me, you know, and they ask that exact question. Hey, I'm looking to buy a car. You know, what do you think about this? Will it go up in value? You know, I always say you can't put a price on memorable moments and smiles per mile. You cannot put a price on that. I've been lucky in the sense of all the cars that I've owned, I acquired them before they became trendy and popular. 
So I bought a lot of cars when they were five, 10, 20 grand that ended up becoming maybe worth 10 times what I paid for them. Early turbos, perfect example. Early short wheelbase 911s, perfect example. But I was acquiring those cars when nobody wanted them. No, it's like today, you look at certain things, you go to a cars and coffee, Malibu cars and coffee, perfect example. You'll see like 10 dudes show up in paint to sample GT3 RSs. And to me, yes, that's a great car, but it's, and it's a valuable car. And it's a great driving car. But when you see 10 of them in the cars and coffee that all look pretty similar, it's not actually that unique a car. You know, Porsche built 7,800 of them. So I'm never chasing a car down today thinking, what is it going to be worth in five years? And my other pet peeve are guys that don't want to drive cars because they don't want to devalue them. You know, they bought something with 500 miles on it and they don't want to add any miles to it. And that's fair enough. It's like a piece of art, right? You can hang it on your wall and look at it. But to me, I don't have any interest in those guys or cars where they don't want to drive them because, hey, I don't want to devalue it. I don't want to put too many miles on it. I have a perfect example. Earlier on this year, I bought a 996 GT2, the king of the hill from 2002. Porsche only made 375 of these cars for the U.S. market over a three-year period. But the majority of them only have, you know, 20,000 miles is a lot of miles on an early GT2. Anyway, long story short, I ended up buying a car here in L.A. I'm the third owner, lifelong L.A. car, never been out of L.A. I knew the prior owner. It's got 90,000 miles on it. So the majority of people that would be looking for a 996 GT2 automatically not interested in this car because it's got four times the average mileage on it. But it had $50,000 worth of receipts on it. So whatever this car needed, because it was a very expensive car in the day and the prior owners took care of it, they spent money on the car and maintained it. Now, I have a bunch of buddies that have owned basically the same car with 20,000 miles on it. Their cars didn't drive any better. And the moral to the story here is I probably paid 50% of the market value for a car with 90,000 miles on it that drives just as good as one with 20 or 25,000 miles on it. So I've been lucky in the sense of I've always acquired cars at relatively good price points. I've never actually spent a lot of money on anything I've owned because I've always, most of the time, got it ahead of when it became valuable or trendy. Or I didn't care about mileage. I never care about mileage. I bought a car not too long ago for 5,000 bucks and nine, nine, uh, Gen, uh, Gen 2 996, and the guy sends me a text. He goes, I know it's not what you're looking for. I had another ad on Instagram, wanted Gen 1 996 Aero Kit Car. He goes, I know it's not what you're looking for. It's a Gen 2 2004, but I'll practically give it to you. I go, well, how much he's practically giving it to me? He said 5,000 bucks. So my first question was, does it run? He said, yes. I go, does it need anything mechanically? He said, no, cosmetically, it's not great, but doesn't really need anything mechanically. And I bought it sight unseen. It's like, how bad could it be for five grand? And here's a moral to the story. Hannah said to me, my, my girlfriend, she goes, how many miles are on it? I go, I didn't even care to ask him. It was a $5,000 car that ran and drive. So mileage is not important to me. You know, I've driven cars with 200,000 miles on them that drive better than cars with 2,000 miles on them. Because generally when cars sit, things seize up, hoses crack, you know, it's better for a car to be driven than a car that sits. So that's kind of my long rambling answer on how I acquire cars. And, you know, I never, ever buy a car thinking this is going to be worth X amount of dollars five years down the road. And um, I just want to say one last thing about that. So that that definitely makes it easier for you to buy cars, right? If you're not worrying about all these different things. 
Oh, yeah. And, you know, maybe I'm lucky. I've only ever once done a pre-purchase inspection on a car. That happened to be a 75 Turbo that I bought in Australia. So I have this motto, mantra, expect the worst and hope for the best. So I'm not one of those guys that is super nitpicky because, like I say, it doesn't matter whether I've spent a little money or a bit more money. I've always had to do something to every car that I've owned. So no car is perfect. I don't need perfection. I don't think it exists, and I don't look for it. So that enables me to have the freedom to buy whatever I want when I want. The, only, the other caveat to my story, though, is once I've made a decision, I hunt it down until I find it. I generally don't give up. I don't necessarily ask other people's opinions on what they think because that sidetracks me. But without a shadow of a doubt, once I've made a deal verbally, I make sure that guy gets the money straight away. So I'm fully committed. I'm all in. Otherwise, I don't bother. So that's kind of how I acquire cars. And my theory around, you know, the way I've acquired and built my collection is doesn't need to be perfect. I'm all about variety. You know, I've got a buddy that was looking for the perfect Porsche and five years later, he still hadn't found it. I go, you could have been driving a car for five years, making all these great memories, but you're trying to find something that doesn't exist. The perfect car. Yeah. All right. And so do you think all automotive enthusiasts have that one car brand or car that reflects who they are, their personality? I think most, I think a lot of guys have their number one choice car or brand. You know, you could be a sport import tuner. You could be a, you know, Nissan GTR, a Datsun 240Z, a Beetle, a bus, a Mopar, a Cobra, a Ferrari. I think most people favor one particular brand and then they expand within that brand. You just pick your poison. Are you a Ferrari guy? You're a Porsche guy? You're a Mercedes guy, right? A lot of people love G-Wagons and, you know, 107s or whatever it may be. A lot of people like BMWs. All they buy is BMWs. So I think it's a general blanket statement. People tend to favor one mark. And then, you know, if they're able to have a few different cars, then maybe to get some variety within that. All right. And so as a kid, were you, you know, not as a kid, but as a teenager, you know, 19, 20s, were you really immersing yourself in automotive enthusiasm, like going to car meets, you know, seeing all these car shows? Uh, personally, no. You know, I came to America as a 19-year-old. That was what I call my sex, drugs, rock and roll years. The car was kind of secondary to going out to clubs and enjoying rock and roll. When I bought my first Porsche at 25, that represented that milestone freedom. But back then, 25 years ago, cars and coffee and car show meets weren't as accessible as they are today. I think the whole cars and coffee movement has really only been in the past 10 years. So, you know, I think the accessibility to going to car meets today is easier and there's more variety and more accessibility than when I was in my early 20s acquiring my cars. Sure, I went to certain car meets. I remember going to the Mopar meet in Woodley Park and the British car meet. But these were not cars and coffees. They were like car meets that were specific to a British car club or the Mopar club. The great thing about any cars and coffee you go to today, for me, is the variety of the cars that you see, from old to new, from hot rod to muscle cars to cruisers. You know, I occasionally go to the Malibu cars and coffee, and you see everything from 50s Cadillacs all the way to the latest, greatest, whatever it is, Lamborghinis and everything in between. And it's kind of cool to see that diversity. And so do you think it's important 
um, you know, as an automotive enthusiast who has a car to, you know, have that group of friends who are just as invested as you are and go drive together and, you know, do these activities together? Yes and no. Most of the time I go drive on my own, truth be told. I may meet up with someone up at Newcombs, but the majority of the time I drive on my own. Having said that, though, two weekends ago, I had some friends from out of town. Uh, they wanted to go for a drive, so I pulled out the GT3, the GT2 that's over there, and the 993, and I said, hey, let's go drive these cars. So it's nice to be able to share uh, what I always refer to as, when I talk about other cars, OPP, other people's Porsches. Today, other people are actually driving my Porsches. So yes and no. I mean, for me, I like to drive at my own pace. I don't necessarily have to wait for someone else. Um, but occasionally I'll drive in a group, which is fun as well. So it all depends on the day where we're going and how we want to get there and, uh, you know, make whatever the most is out of that moment. Yeah. And so once you're done restoring these cars and fixing them up, are you thinking of really preserving these cars or like, I'm going to sell it in a year and you get a new one? Are you always thinking about, you know, new cars coming in and coming out? Well, great question again. I seldom sell a car. The last car that I actually built and sold was in 2013, my STR that I sold at the Gooding auction on the 50th anniversary of the 911. That was the last real car that I'd sort of built up. Since then, I've sold two turbos in the past seven years, but I've bought probably a dozen cars. So for me, I actually hate selling. I prefer buying Occasionally, you have to sell a car to pay a bill or something. And uh, I had seven three-liter turbos, 75 through uh, 77, the car that I fell in love with Porsche. And these, to me, were the most desirable cars. And I had five of, I had seven of them. I'm now down to five. And I acquired them when they were sort of really, really affordable. And I sold one to a guy in Australia. And he said, why are you selling this car? I go, well, I have six others. This one's not my favorite. And with the money that you're going to pay me for this car, I'm going to buy four cars that I really want. One of them was a 996 GT3. One was uh, my 924 Carrera GT. And I got two other cars, which I actually really drive. So I sold one car for a fair amount of money and managed to buy four other cars. And the car that I sold was not my most desirable car. I didn't regret selling it. So sometimes, you know, a situation like that comes up where you have a car that has gone up in value. The early turbo was that car. And I ended up getting one of my favorite cars, a 996 GT3, which I drive a lot more than I drove that 76 Turbo. Yeah. So, you know, generally, like I said, this is a hobby for me. It's not a business. Sometimes I have to sell something to pay some bills or acquire a few other cars or make some room in the garage. So there is no sort of black and white process to it. It happens organically. All right. And so do you think it's important to always have a dream car in mind, something not to work towards, but, you know, something you could have in, in like the possible future. Sure. It's an aspirational goal that, you know, uh, I'm a goal oriented collector. Things come and go, you know, like the, the infamous Ferrari 308 GT4. I just kind of want one, but it's not a dream car. Um, but I, I think having a goal and working towards that goal in life, whatever it may be, whether it's a new pair of Nike sneakers or a skateboard or whatever it may be, I think having a goal that you can work towards keeps you motivated. And I think that's ultimately a good thing. So uh, uh, there's always a car on my wish list. And as a young automotive enthusiast, you know, you, you're in the U.S., you started, you know, show more interesting cars. Were you at that age, like, you know, 30s, looking for cars to switch in and out? Or was it still like, I have this one car, I just want to keep driving it, and then I'll think about buying another one? Now, there's always cars coming in, and I've... 
I've always owned multiple of the same thing, like five turbos. Do I need five three liter turbos? No, but no two of them drive the same. These cars are 45 years old today. So, you know, I like the variety and the experience and I, I just like collecting things. You know, humans like to collect, whether it's sneakers, cars, guitars, watches, stamps, whatever it may be, right? Star Wars figures, people like to collect things. For me, I just like the everything about it, the thrill, the hunt, the drive, the acquisition. And uh, from a design point of view, the great things to look at. From a driving point of view, they cover the five senses. So for me, it's always about variety. Uh, one is not enough. Yeah. And so do you have anywhere in California that you love to drive, like two locations that are like the perfect place to drive your cars? Yeah, uh, 18 miles from where I'm sat is a road called uh, Highway 2, better known as Angeles Crest Highway. Goes to an altitude of 7,000 feet, probably a third of the way up, 26 miles up from the bottom. There's a restaurant called Newcomb's Ranch at 5,400 feet. So it's just a, a great way to get um, a one with the car, enjoy the road. It's accessible. It's a world-class mountain road. That's one of the great things about being in LA and Southern California is the accessibility to ocean, desert, mountain, all the topography and all the elevation changes on these roads. And when you're behind the wheel of your favorite car or even in a rental car, it doesn't really matter. You know, you're at peace with the environment. You're not really thinking about anything else. So that is the freedom of the drive right there. That's awesome. And so my last question is, as a young enthusiast, did you have a car collection that inspired you to have more than like, two or three cars or was it always just I just want to you know have 10 cars or more no for me it always evolves you know I, I didn't think I'd own this many cars uh, I worked hard to be in the position where I can um, enjoy certain models obviously these things that are out of my reach you know Carrera GTs and 918s and 959s to name three Porsches but that's what I call OPP, other Porsches that are, I always say, you don't have to own them to experience and enjoy the drive. And that's what's great about the car community, especially the Porsche community. These people you know, seem to have a willingness to share these experiences with cars, with other people. So I've been fortunate in that sense, but um, to me, you know, I, I just enjoy cars and there is no master plan goal of, you know, have to have this, have to have that, things change. But um, so long as it excites me, looks cool, and I enjoy driving it, I'm into it. And that doesn't matter whether it's a $500 car or a $500,000 car, you know? Thank you all for listening. I hope you all enjoyed. Please feel free to email me at 100 at gmail.com for any other questions or ideas on the podcast in general. And thank you so much, Magnus Walker, for coming on the podcast. You're such an inspiration to me, and I hope you're an inspiration to other automotive enthusiasts out there. To finish, thank you all to the people who have been listening to my podcast. It really does mean a lot. And please keep listening. I want to inspire other enthusiasts. So please share the episode through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, Pocket Cast, or by going to anchor.fm slash nico-lombard. Thank you all for listening. See you next time. Thank you.